Hello and welcome to the AV Forums podcast for Wednesday the 5th of August 2015 and joining me on this edition are longtime stranger, games editor Mark Botwright. Why thank you, so are you. Assistant editor Steve Withers. You guys look like an 80s rock band. Oh, stop doing it with us. <laughs> and... I was really glad he asked me and not here because I thought I bet he's got oh, the same one as Exactly the same one. Right, ready. And news editor Mark Hodgkinson. I'm going to need therapy. As are all of us at the end of this podcast. Welcome along. It's it's sunny where I am at the minute. Although for July, it seemed to be rather wet. That seems to be my memory of July this year. I don't know about anybody else, but... Well, if you all live up near the Arctic, what can you expect? I think, actually, actually I think it's been pretty dry, but not that warm for, for July, I've got to say. But judging by my hay fever, very windy and very dry. What's wind got to do with your hay fever? Blows the pollen around, makes it worse. <sighs> I don't know. It, it almost seems like autumn's going to have a, a long run in. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's how it feels at the moment, isn't it? It's like, right, we're already into autumn. Yeah. Next stop Christmas. <laughs> no, no, it's still summer. The schools are still on the summer holidays. It's still summer. Uh, and talking about school holidays and being uh, run around like an idiot, uh, how was your July, Mark? I survived so far. Three weeks with the third week of summer holidays now. And we're still alive. Took a week off with the kids last week. Weather was pretty crap, so it was very expensive. So I had to pay for lots of things. So the, the weather. Did, did you go good. to the movies, Mark? We did. We went to see. Oh, forget it. <laughs> minions? Did you go see Minions? No, not Minions. In, inside yeah. Out, is it called? Oh yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Wasn't that impressed? Kids didn't like it. The kids were just depressed when they came out of that. There's, no, there's, no, there's, there's very little payoff at the end. Very little happy bit. It's all about a, a, a depression and. Uh, moving home and it being very very sad that's, that's so why like, steve loved it yeah i think it's better for grown-ups to be honest there was the, the payoff at the end is about five minutes where she's happy again and no they were just they just cried all the way through it it's <laughs> it quite depressing as as did steve you brought your kids out of the cinema traumatized yeah pretty much <laughs> So no, it, it didn't go down well uh, so you won't be listening to av forums movie reviews in future then you should have gone and seen minions <laughs> yes i said that uh, and we, and anyway. the weather better pick up because I'm holidaying in the Lake District next week. Oh dear! Oh dear! Grave. Mm. Oh dear! Have you seen the the low that's sitting in the Atlantic at the minute? It's about not, to I'm hit us at the weekend. Mark, while you're there, Mark, you can go and check out the Withnell Cottage. I could. Where about where about in the lakes are you going? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Towards the bottom. Yeah, to get Jenny sorts all that out. Jenny sorts all that. I just turned up. <laughs> Possibly near the beach. Beach? <laughs> and lakes. I know, but there's beach bits as well, aren't there? I'll tell you when I come back. <laughs> we, can't, we can't wait, Mark. It's got sand. It's got sands in the name. Right. So, <laughs> Holland Count News and Holiday News. <laughs> yep, there you go. Um, so that was July taken care of. It is... Uh, the new month, we're going to come to that in, in a second. But first of all, uh, we've got stuff that you can win. I better do this because I've had to add competitions in from when the uh, running order went out. So Thermal Take PC Gaming Bundle, courtesy of Scan, it closes on the 31st of August. So still I've got another month to go on that one. And Kelly's Heroes on Blu-ray is available till the 24th of August. And previous competition winners, Worst Kept Secret won Catch Me If You Can on Blu-ray. And Arabelle99 won the EE4GE or 4G Action Cam. Congratulations. Let's move on. And uh, while we're talking about beginning of the month, uh, let's do upcoming reviews first of all, um, because it's fresh in the mind. So, uh, Steve, what have you got coming up in August? Uh, this month, Phil, so far, I've got coming in the uh, LG 
LHB745 all-in-one um, system and also the LG H4 wireless speaker. Uh, hopefully, later in the month, we should be seeing the first um, receivers from some manufacturers like Denon, Rance and Yamaha. And what about some 4K TVs from Sony? Hopefully, the 93C, definitely, and the 90C should be the two that we're hoping to see uh, as soon as possible, actually. Okay. Oh, and possibly, uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, some Philips TVs should be hitting the, hitting the reviews quite soon as well. Okay, right. And uh, Mark, what have you got coming? I have got a 55-inch Panasonic 1080p TV, of all things. 1080p TV? What are you I talking mean, about? Back in the olden days. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Um, CS520B, I believe it is. And it's pretty good, actually. That's my review. You make it sound like it's steam-powered. <laughs> yeah. Of course, it's tongue-in-cheek, Margaret. But obviously, a lot of people buy it. I think it's 650 quid, I think it is, which is pretty good value for a 55-inch. 1080p or not. It's, yeah, it's good. I've liked it. Um, I've also got uh, a long-standing thing that's been here ages. This is an Asus Chromebox, which I'm turned into a media center. I've spent ages messing around just using Chrome OS, and it's it's just no good for AV4. <laughs> so I flashed open Alec on it, and it's brilliant. Uh, and I've got a, uh, this is really me, an outdoor travel speaker, uh, Bayon Audio Sound Scene Speaker. Are you taking it to the lakes, were you? It's coming to the lakes. So it's is it waterproof? It. Exactly, it is. Yes, that is one of its USPs. So we can be able to test is, that is, out. Is it soundproof? Soundproof, I don't know. I'll have to check. <laughs> it looks pretty robust, I have to say that. All right, you could drop it from a great height then and see what Yeah, happens. I'm going to test it out. I've got, I've got two, so if I break one, I can always... You know, <laughs> see and then just, you know, more boxes coming all the time. <laughs> Endless stream, little black boxes. I'm just you saying. make your house sound like the... The warehouse at the end of Raiders. That's mm -hmm. where they send it. Hodge's house. <laughs> yes, and I have got a, top a, a, people are working on it. <laughs> I didn't count how many streaming boxes are in this house. Close to twenty now, I think. Jesus. All all. A, just think of the processing power that you have in your house at this moment in time. If I combined it all into one, it'd be the it'd be the ultimate media streamer. You could maybe even run Windows Ten on it. Maybe. And one of them is running Windows 10. I'm worried it's going to become self-aware. <laughs> so that, that's me. <laughs> it'll become self-aware and then it'll think, oh, fish. <laughs> and kill itself. <laughs> Sorry, Mark, I'm not having any downer on you. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that a lot. <laughs> um, at the moment, I have um, a 1080p TV in for review from Sony. Uh, it's an Android TV. And it's a little bit temperamental at the moment. I've had to do a hard restart on it. This isn't the sort of language you were using earlier. Um, hard language, true. <laughs> I'm, I'm giving the beep machine uh, time to cool down. Yes, let's just say I've had a few issues with it so far. Um, and uh, I've had to do a hard restart on it. And I haven't started it up yet, but we'll see what happens when I give it a second chance. It may be that it has to go back. It might just be knackered, I don't know. Uh, and I've also got a Panasonic turning up tomorrow, a 4K uh, CX680, which is only £100 more than your 1080 TV that you've got in, Mark. Oh, is so, it? so it'll be interesting to see uh, see what where the corners are being cut for a 4K TV at that price point, if there are any. Um, How much is it? 799 For what screen size, sorry? It's a 50 4K. It's 799 Mm, that is uh, cheap. Yeah, and if it's anything like really, the C really cheap. if it's anything like the CX seven hundred, which I had in recently, which was nine 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 for a fifty inch four K TV, it could be quite the little bargain. And also on top of that, I've got a Blu ray player that I need to uh, write up 
which is a Sony, and um, coming up later this month, uh, we've got IFA, which I'm busy planning and putting things together for and writing things that I've seen, but I can't say anything till IFA. Uh, right, Steve, uh, talking about TVs, you've actually got one in at the minute. Uh, the, the review is going to be up by the time the podcast goes up, and uh, talking about um, reasonably priced 4K TVs, what have you been looking at? Well, I thought it was reasonably priced until you told me the one you've got is only uh, like nine seven nine nine. Uh, this is fifty five inch though, so a bit bigger. Fifty five inch Ju seven five hundred from Samsung uh, sits in the middle of their UHD lineup this year. So we've got the the high end JS range, which are all the ones with um, HDR and wider color spaces and ten bit panels. And beneath the Ju seven five hundred, you've got the Ju six three hundred, I think it is, which you've already reviewed. So this one, um, this is an interesting TV because I think it is competitively priced. Uh, you can get it for around about 1,400 quid um, if you shop around online at the moment, which is not bad for a 55-inch I don't know. It's only five HD inches. TV. Hmm? It's only five inches. Ah, yes, but I'm not finished yet. Um, what's interesting about this TV is that I, I didn't see the 8500. You did that, Mark, but was that edge lit? Yes. Yeah. This is back. This has got a direct backlight, this one. So it's, it's, um, it's got a full direct backlight. Still got local dimming. Local dimming, I think the same local dimming that's on the um, JU8500. Haven't seen that, as I said, but I don't think it's quite as good as it is on the um, on the higher end models, the JS9000 and 9500. And I think you pointed out, Mark, that you didn't think the dimming, the local dimming on um, the J8, JU8500 yeah, was it wasn't as good. bad, but it was definitely not. Yeah, it's still good. It's still good, but I don't think it's quite as impressive. But you still, it's still got local dimming. It's got a direct backlight. It's very nicely made. It's got the mini, uh, the mini connect box that comes on the JU8500. Um, it's got the chamfered bezel that you get on the top of the line uh, JS9500. And um, the same kind of curved stand and, and really well made. And I think, you know, for what you're getting, that's a bloody good deal. Um, you're getting a pretty decent TV. Okay, it's only got an 8-bit panel. It doesn't support HDR and it hasn't got the um, TCI color space, full width color space. Although, to be honest, almost nothing has yet. But in terms of performance, uh, image accuracy and, and picture quality and, and also backlight uniformity, I was really impressed. I thought this is a cracking TV for the money and, uh, and, and also a really good performer. So, and I, I take it that's based on out-of-the-box settings. Yeah, the out-of-the-box settings were really, really accurate. I mean, all the errors, both in terms of color and in terms of grayscale, were below three. So, I mean, that's that's you know, that's even if you got a calibration, even after we calibrated it for the review, um, you know, the improvements weren't really that noticeable anyway. I mean, out-of-the-box, really impressive, um, good color accuracy across some um, different saturation points. It's a really solid, really well-made, really good TV, uh, and. You know, I'm kind of thinking, why would you buy the 8500 other than maybe the future proofing? Obviously, you've got the the um, the 10 bit panel and the HDR support. So if you want that, then that's why you would pay the extra money for the JU8500. But otherwise, at that price point, um, it's a, it's a really strong competitor. Impressed, very impressed. Steve, I think the big question is, it, it's certainly a question I keep asking myself every time I review something at the minute. Um, would you buy one? You know what? I I could say I've been thinking about this because uh, I was watching some TV last night on it and thinking, you know what, I, I could I'd be very happy with this TV. You know, if I was looking for a TV, I was you know if I had about one and a half grand to spend on an ultra HD TV, that would certainly be at the top of my list. Yes, I would be happy. So all the smart stuff working. Yep. Yeah. Uh, where yes, yes, all the smart stuff works. So there's still a couple of um, apps that are not there yet. Like they used to have ITV Player last year. That's disappeared. Who cares about that? <laughs> <laughs> but on the whole, the majority of stuff is there. It does work. 
Um, so it's got the tires and smart platform, which is getting better as, as it becomes more bedded in. You've got the two remote controls. It supports 3D. It doesn't come with any glasses, but then again, the 9500 doesn't come with any glasses either. And that's, you know, six grand. Um, so, it, um, yeah, it does everything you could possibly want it to do. The only the only caveat I would say is obviously if you're thinking about future proofing, then doesn't doesn't support HDR, for example. But you know, you're not going to find a TV that does at that price point. So if you're if you've only got a limited budget and you're looking for something that can deliver a really good performance out of the box, as Phil said, that is probably key. Out of the box, excellent performance, and majority of what you're going to be watching is going to be either stream 4K if you can, or you know, or up, upscaled 1080p. Then um, this TV will will give you a stonking picture, and I was very impressed. So moving on from the Samsung, and let, let's stick with TVs. Hisense, it's a name that everybody needs to get used to. Uh, they're going to be a massive brand uh, in the UK and in the US. And it looks like they're really going all out to uh, cement themselves in the US market at the minute, Steve, because they just bought Sharp. Yeah, they bought their uh, Sharp's US operations, which means they basically bought a big factory in, um, in Mexico and obviously the distribution outlets into North and South America. Um, it's certainly part of Hisense's plan uh, to, to increase their global presence. Obviously, for those who don't know who Hisense are, they are the biggest TV manufacturer in China. Um, and I think on, on panel production, the third biggest in the world now. Um, I think they're the only manufacturer, apart from Samsung, who produce uh, curved screens at the moment, actually make their own curved panels. But they are huge, absolutely huge, and going to get bigger. And this is obviously part of their strategy. So they bought um, into the US through, through Sharp. I mean, Sharp, as we know, pulled out and everywhere but Japan, I believe, last year. So I think they sold their European operations to TP Vision, who also owned Philips. No, they didn't actually. They didn't actually. No, who did they sell it to? No one. No one wanted <laughs> no, to buy no it. One wanted it. <laughs> so no, it's unsold at the moment. Um, TP Vision, of course, the Taiwanese, another Chinese slash Taiwanese manufacturer. But uh, Hisense, yeah, they, they've um, they will be mo- they were already available in the UK um, and will be adding more retailers. So at the moment, I believe it's um, Richard Sounds and. Um, they can you can online through AO, and they also do um, don't deal with uh, Argos, and, and and they're going to be adding more as they go forward. So I mean, yes, they're going to be a big brand, and I think that we realised this a few years ago when they took over the old Microsoft stand at CES, and suddenly they had this gigantic high sense stand with loads of TVs on display, which looked really good. Well, I think it's it's always been a thing that the the Chinese were coming. Um, it's just the the economies of scale that they have, and then if you look at the TV market and the way that TV market. Uh, has been going in the last three years it's been a fight to the bottom basically um, and those that had no appetite for the fight have moved on like Toshiba like Sharp um, like a couple of others I mean Philips sold their brand over to TP Vision and so on um, you know those that weren't up for the fight have gotten out of the arena because that's you know prices it's just economy of scale and prices are going to go down and down and down and sadly that means quality as well because uh, uh you know, you can only make things at certain price points and the components and so on that get used at those price points will never be um, high high end. So I think that's why when you look at things now, you're looking at the likes of Samsung, Panasonic, LG, we're talking about TVs that are costing north of a thousand pounds for their mid-range and then higher uh, prices for because they're going for the quality market. They're going for um, where they can make a little bit of markup because the bottom end of the market, and this is where Hisense are, are going to come in because it's where all the new brands come in. It's where LG came in. It's where Samsung came in before they were big names. Um, they're going to come in at that end of the market. They're obviously buying up a lot of uh, IP stuff like Sharp's name and so on. And, um, you know, I, I think give it three years and we'll be talking uh, Hisense in the same sentence as Samsung and LG. 
I mean, I think we've used example before, but if you go back 10 years, you wouldn't have thought that Samsung and, and LG would be the two no, dominant TV manufacturers not. back when they were LG was lucky gold star. Um, but things are very different now. And you're right. I think in another five years, it will be the Chinese will become one of the dominant manufacturers, not just Tyson's, but probably other Chinese manufacturers as well. But um, what's interesting, I think, is their timing is very good because there is definitely uh, a, a gap in the market right now I know because you've got so many other manufacturers particularly the Japanese ones just literally dropping out so Sharp, Sharp obviously but also Toshiba pulled out of the market this year so you've got no Toshiba and they were targeting the lower end um, so I think there is um, and as you said some of the manufacturers are going for the more high end market to differentiate themselves so I think there's a real opportunity here for Hisense to, to fill a gap It's also and, good time because of the all the technology transition as well, isn't it? So we've got 4K and HDR and OLED and all this kind of stuff emerging all at the same time. So good time to get a new brand in there, I think. I, th yeah. I think this saddest thing in all of this is, is and we're guilty of this, we're, we're just kind of, you know, walking over the top of two of the biggest brand names that ever were. And one of them who invented, you know, the LCD TV and that's Sharp. Massive market share. I mean, if you were at university now doing business, this is this, this is the thing to study. How did Sharp get from being the, the inventor of LCD technology to selling huge shipments of the technology to suddenly now being nowhere and mm. and worthless in this market? So so much so that they've had to sell out to you know an, an up and coming brand. And the same with Toshiba. You know, you know in the in the, the days of CRT TV and so on, where I suppose you could make money, they were one of the dominant brands. Hello, Tosh got a Toshiba. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, but when you get a company like Sharp who are now nowhere it's it just kind of makes you think you know 10 years yeah. ago and they're still huge in their own home market but everywhere else it just seems to be you know was it badly run make a lot of mobile displays though don't they i know that we're talking terms of tv now but that's where they'll they make their money on mobile displays yeah but it's diverse and diversifying businesses i mean they, they all they all do it and even sony have you know chopped up their company and started making subsidiary companies i mean sony display are no longer part of the main Sony group, are they? So, I mean, even there, that they're starting to separate out probably the loss-making business side of things. And um, it's just a real shame. And it's this fight to the bottom of the market. And I, I don't know why it's maybe, you know, 20 years ago, you walked into the pub and bought a new BMW and you boasted about how much you paid for your BMW. It seems to be nowadays that you'd walk into the pub with your BMW and say how, how big a discount you got off the, the and how cheap it is. But do you not think that the idea of, of a kind of prestige technology product has been taken by the smartphone now? Because if you consider how much people are spending just continually with upgrading smartphones, you know, if you've bought every Apple iPhone in comparison to the, what the same people might usually spend on TVs, they wouldn't be looking to upgrade that TV or spend that amount in any way. You know, the, the smartphone's the kind of prestige product now. Yeah, an iPhone 6 costs the same amount of money as this Panasonic TV I'm reviewing. It's kind of funny. Yeah, and in a couple of years' time, someone who owns that will be thinking about, you know, once they've paid it off, changing to something else. Whereas you, you just, no one's doing that with TVs. Or very few people are. Yeah, the average cycle's about 10 years, isn't it? People replace the tellies. It is interesting, though, how the middle of the market, there was a time where it would have been more, so we say, top-end brands that would kind of, put something out that would appeal to people you know that bit just below prestige pricing whereas now it's almost like the brands that have come up from the bottom you know you've mentioned your kind of samsung's and the like um and now they're creating very good sets yeah it, it's it's just the way that it's worked hasn't it i mean at, at one point 
you know, going back to maybe the 60s and 70s, I, I think even Japanese brands had trouble breaking into the UK market, didn't they? So it kind of goes to swings and roundabouts. It, it just moves with, with, I guess, where where they can make money. And then once they can't make money, it moves on. It gets handed on to somebody else who's coming up who have economies of scale greater and who can manage to make a profit. And then when those economies of scale disappear, I mean, it must be really expensive to make a TV in Japan nowadays compared to one in China. Um, or even Taiwan, or they really India. are made in Japan, oh, aren't they? Usually, they just ship them out, put oh, yeah. components out to factories elsewhere. I think Sharp, though, to a certain extent, have only got themselves to blame. I mean, how many times do we go to CESville and see these really great-looking Sharp TVs, and you, they never got released anywhere? You never could buy them in the UK. Well, they used to Maybe. really, it re- really annoyed me. Um, <laughs> Sharp and Toshiba, um, you know, they would fly you out to places like Rome for their big launch, and uh, this is Toshiba, and they would show you this cracking TV with all the latest processing and on the re- all the rest of it and then the next morning you would have the UK briefing and you'd be told that that TV's not coming to the UK mm. and all we're getting is the cheapy up to mid-range level TVs it's, well, ex- it, well, it's expensive it, to make them left-hand drive isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but you know in all seriousness um, if they're not going to release the product then nobody can buy the product then there isn't a market there is there it just seemed to be that they didn't want to take any any chances yeah. Um, they just wanted to to sell the cheap stuff into the Argosies and and catalogs stores and all that kind of thing, um, and they didn't want to release the the good product, the the really interesting product that we saw at CES and so on. They'd launch it in America because it's a bigger market, ten times the size of the UK, maybe even twenty times the size of the UK market. But um, if you're not going to support the market, then you can't expect sales, and and you kind of then you know blame the market that you're not making any money. You've got to pull out. And that's what happened with Toshiba and Sharp, and, and it's so annoying because you just knew that those TVs that were really nice TVs and they would have sold. Yeah, but I mean, they definitely. had good branding with Aquos and that kind of thing. You know, they had, should we say, a word that people recognized. Yeah, totally. Um, but again, you know, and it's a question I asked right at the start has it been mismanaged? You know, outside of their home country, have Sharp been managed properly? Have, have have the products been put to market properly? Have they looked at the markets and what the markets needed and, and hit those price points? Or have they, they just given up, uh, you know, mismanaged it? I mean, I mean look at Toshiba. Uh, the news last week about all their executives having, you know, yeah. diddled millions out of the company. So that's not going to do them any good, is it? So, yeah, it, it's really sad. It is sad. Sharp took a few left turns as well, didn't they? I'm thinking civilly of the <coughs> yellow pixel. Um, yeah, some, they did some weird stuff <laughs> towards the end. Yeah, but again, it's, you know, it's a shame. It's it, like Pioneer pulling out, and and for before that, Fujitsu pulling out of the market, and then you know we've lost some really good brands that had some really good technology. But you know, things move on, the market moves on, and it all comes down to economies of scale. And and once Hisense are, are are you know an established brand, there'll be somebody else, probably an Indian backed uh, yeah. manufacturer. Waiting to come in at that bottom end again, and and we'll see the cycle repeat again. Um, and that's not to say that any of the high end stuff's poor in any way. It's not. It's it looks like they're going to be a really competitive brand. And from the stuff that we've seen at CES, Steve, you know, over the years, you know, the quality of the stuff. You know, if if you would take the badges off the top four and and line the TVs up, I think you'd be hard pushed to to know yeah, whose TV was who. Be. I mean, some of them looked very impressive. Um, I mean, they were showing. Um I'm not sure these have actually been released, but they, they, was, they were showing OLED models two, three years ago. looked impressive. 
Um, they sensibly were cherry picking stuff rather than trying to develop a lot of their own things. So, for example, they were using Android TV long before anybody else I know was, because um, I think I saw them using it two years ago, or talking about using it on their panels. Um, and yeah, they're, they're looking to fill a specific um, you know, niche in the market. And and I think they'll look to you know walk before they can run, and they'll take it sensibly. And and yeah, they will become a player. And we're left in a situation now where very sadly the only two manufacturers left from Japan in the in TV market are Sony and, and Panasonic. And even there, I would say, uh, are that strong right now. So yeah, we'll see how yeah. it plays out. And like like we said earlier on, we've got IFA coming up at the end of August, beginning of September. Well, it's beginning of September. starts on the 2nd of September is uh, the first main press day of that. This is going to be an indicator, I think, as to where things are going to go more so than CES has recently. I think CES is, is basically turned into a technology show over the last two years, Steve. It used to be, this is the latest model, blah, blah, blah. It now seems to be CES. Is, this is the latest technology that's coming this year. And yeah. then IFA seems to cement where the model numbers are going to be, where the models are going to be, and, and how they're going to push this technology into the market. Yeah, definitely. The last couple of years at IFA, have been, there's been some interesting stuff announced, uh, more so perhaps than, than you're right than CES, which is, I mean, a lot of the TV manufacturers now, it's not, they're only giving you, they weren't even giving us actual model numbers at, at CES. They were just giving us an indication of technology that was going to be in the TVs. Uh, and we had to wait until things like you know the Panasonic um, convention, things like that, to actually find out details on their actual model numbers. So yeah, um, IFA could be. I mean, I'm looking forward to it. Four weeks time. I can't believe it's only four weeks until IFA, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm just going to mute for a second because it's a cat on the desk. Gives <laughs> <laughs> me get off the desk. <laughs> they don't respond to that, Steve. No, no, no. Polite requests. <laughs> She's obviously bored. <laughs> Right, so that's IFA coming up at the end of the month. Um, we've kind of put the TV business to rights. I, I, I still think it's quite sad that we are losing these well-established brands, but I guess, uh, you know, Steve, if, if you're not fit enough, then you're not going to survive. If, if you're not got the economies of scale or you haven't got your area of the market that you're prepared to uh, spend the money in, then you, you're not going to get anywhere. And I think that's probably why OLED is taking so long to, to come to market and other technologies, because... I think there's a reluctance or maybe even just a, a fact of the money isn't there to invest. Definitely the case in, uh, in the Japanese manufacturers. I just don't think they've got the money to invest in. I mean, you, you look at the billions that uh, OLED, um, LG have pumped into OLED and, uh, and and you can see that it's a big risk. Um, even even Samsung are prepared to take that risk at the moment. They're letting LG take all the risk basically as far as OLED goes. And, and we'll see whether that risk, that particular gamble pays off for, for LG. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's a very competitive, very difficult, very tough market, um, as many manufacturers have found out. Um, so good luck to Hisense, because I mean, as a consumer, we need multiple manufacturers out there to to, to also to, you know, to drive competition, to drive uh, innovation. You don't want it down to a couple of manufacturers, because otherwise, you know, you're going to get screwed. So you know, we we need more manufacturers out there. And so when anyone new comes into the marketplace, I think that's a good thing. Because you know it drives the other manufacturers to perform better. It drives them to be more competitive. Um, so I really hope Hisense do well. And of course, Mark, you know, looking at the future, what we're what we're probably going to have is just a monitor, some speakers, and an Android box, or twenty Android boxes. Twenty Android boxes, <laughs> ideally, <laughs> on top of each other. They're getting out at the wrong time almost because they're, they're always big screens. Was their thing, wasn't it? Yeah, but the thing was, it didn't. I don't want to go back over the conversation. No, I know, again, but, I know, but, yeah, I mean, but this was the annoying thing. We used to see some great stuff at CES that would get trickled into the American market, and we'd never see in the UK. And if that's, you know, why show the stuff? 
why get us excited over stuff if you just you know and and why flirt with our staff as well you know remember that steve uh, oh <laughs> yes i do did you make a friend uh, right so that wraps up hardware we'll be back in a second uh, with games news and we actually have some Uh, right, so games news, uh, and Mark is back. And Mark, we actually have some news to talk about. That might be putting it a little strongly. Um, but yeah, I, uh, um, voting for PlayStation Plus games. Uh, I found this an interesting little idea simply because um, there's been kind of murmurings of discontent, particularly amongst um, PlayStation 4 owners with regards the instant game collection. So when you pay for your membership for PlayStation Plus, it allows you to play multiplayer games, but the big kind of um, incentive is the fact that you get free games per month. Um, the problem is when it was first introduced on the PlayStation 3, you had um, it was well into its life cycle, so they could offer lots of old games that were very well rated AAA titles. With the PlayStation 4, obviously it's got, it had a, a smaller catalogue of titles and, and having it right from launch meant that it was very hard to kind of build up with regards the better ones. Um, this seems a nice way to, to allow people to have their say, though, on which games they want uh, to see given for the instant game collection. A um, couple of caveats for it, though, which is um, it's only yet to be released games, so therefore that pretty much means you know indie small titles and you're unlikely to see your older um big triple a titles you know so if anyone's looking at this thinking yes they'll get to vote for something like Killzone shadow fall now that it's a kind of budget game that you can pick up for a tenner you're still not going to get that um it's also not going to be monthly it's regular intervals throughout the year um however they have said that um for the first promotion the runner-up will be discounted so there's there's a reason to to engage with it anyway slow news week is it very slow news week <laughs> I don't know. Other than that, the only thing that really piqued my interest was EA Profits quarter one are up digital sales account for 77%. And that gives you a little insight into just how much, you know, digital is the future. You can rail against it all you like, but, you know, they make $693 million and 523 of that was digital, you know. That's a very significant number, isn't it? That's 70 70 odd percent and no wonder they're making a lot of money at those prices with the digital prices gracious it's huge but i mean just the the um downloadable games that's that's 84 million of that so you know that's not even the biggest chunk you know they made 211 million from downloadable content no this this downloadable content is it only available on one platform or is that across a number of platforms no no that's that's a number of platforms right okay um, so, so, it, that, so there is scope there for competition if one platform decides to give you five quid off. Oh yeah, yes, there is. However, you know the the uh, pricing policies via certainly the console stores are kind of shrouded in secrecy as to how much power you know the console um, manufacturer has, and generally, I think it's set by publishers. Because we so, could we could see it, uh, you know, Steve hinted die with the TV side of things. You know, if there's no competition there. You know they could set the prices as high as they like. Whereas, you know, if you've got physical formats that are in stores like HMV, HMV still exist. Um, I think there's a couple left. 
you know, if there's a few stores that are selling copies of the same game, you know, there's competition there to get your sales where they'll, they'll, you know, give you a freebie or they'll knock 10 quid off or whatever. Um, you take that away and it's all digital, then they could more or less demand what they want. Yeah. Um, this has been kind of one of the dangers that people highlighted, which was, um, you know, games that you can pick up so cheap on disc you you get you think well you know what i'd like to have that on my console you get home you assume that it might be at the same general price point it won't be you know it will be double triple the price um and particularly for a company like ea bear in mind they've got their own ea access server um service where you know you can subscribe to them and then download a certain amount of games um is that what um, used to be origin is that is that right is that EA? EA Access is their service that they launched on um, Xbox One and PC where you get access to their vault of everything, um, well, a certain amount of titles. Um, and it's, it's the one that actually Sony blocked because they said they were doing it for consumers. Um, but I think really deep down they were doing it simply because they, they didn't want a rival service because, you know, PlayStation Plus and the Instant Game Collection has... You know, it, it's almost become synonymous with the, the PlayStation brand to the point where, you know, some people still don't fully realize that Microsoft are offering something similar. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so there's not really the incentive for, for EA to drop those prices too much because you don't want it rivaling what you might be paying in subscription. But, you know, it, they're, they're just, yeah, they're absolutely coining it with this. Um, and I'd be very surprised if we don't hear at some point in the future someone questioning just how much competition there should be over um, yeah. online prices. Now, I know they've gone bust, but on live, they seem to be well ahead of the market in terms of this kind of thing. Do, do you see that kind of model working in the future, maybe like a Netflix for games or, a, or an Amazon for games? Is that where, where it's heading, or do you think they're going to try and keep everything in-house and, and narrow the competition? I, th I think there's a definite future for that. I think, yeah, that is where we will end up at some point. You know, we, everyone's been kind of predicting the one ubiquitous box to rule them all at some point, or just everyone having a, you know, a platform that you can access from a variety of boxes. You know, Sony have already kind of started going down that route with the fact that um, PlayStation Now would be available on Samsung TVs. Um, that didn't seem to get much coverage, but it seemed, you know, a pretty major piece of news. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, that's very much um, where the future lies, I think, because it, we just can't, the traditional console model of buying a box, it will die at some point. It has to. And, and retail stores, the same. Um, you know, you're slowly migrating from retail stores to online stores. And then I think it will just be a case of, um, yeah, what you can download or, you know, buying monthly subscriptions, that kind of thing. The, I mean, one of the the big obstacles to that and one of the kind of bizarre footnotes to it is that you would assume in a connected age where you know you can download huge files with you know much better broadband service these days that we would have more demos of games that's still a major reason that people kind of people drag in their feet um and and it's also a kind of a fuel to piracy. People just want a cheap way to be able to try a game. And I think with certain of the the subscription services, you know, you can sign up to something like like an EA Access, play for your month, and then just decide, you know, what I'm not going to carry on with the sub subscription. And it will still have been cheaper than going out and trying to buy even one of those games. Yeah, I mean, uh, you see, that would appeal to me. Being not being a gamer. 
you know, I always th- think, you know, it's like three, four hundred quid for the console, and then it's what fifty quid a game. Um, it's a lot of money to to spend if you're not really into it. You know what I mean? Or you you're gonna buy it to see. If, but if I could just buy the console and then pick and choose the content and pay for it, you know, a few pence or a few pounds when I want to play this or that or the next thing and, and pick and choose or just pay a monthly subscription and, and get to play anything. Um, that's got to open up the market to lots more people who otherwise, like I say, would sit in the silence because it's three or 400 quid for a console and 50 odd quid for a game. Yeah, I mean, this is where things like, um, you know, the reason why smartphone gaming is so hugely profitable. It's not due to the amount of hours that, you know, a small group of people put into it. It's due to the fact that it's ubiquitous. You know, everyone's got this this piece of technology that can play games on them. And then, you know, everyone doing so and spending small amounts ends up, you know, making huge amounts of money, shockingly enough. Um, so, you know, the idea of a future where, you know, like with on live, that you might be able to stream things from further away. So you need less technologically beefy products. You know, it's not such a huge costing console in your room. But you could have a ubiquitous app that was available on your smart TV, on a streaming box, on you know so many different products that you can then access something from, like with a Netflix. You know that that will be massively profitable. It's just a case. I think it's just a case of you know you need the broadband service to kind of catch up everywhere and for it to be you know of a certain standard. You know the problem with something like on live was it was a good idea. However, if you looked at say people's reviews of the product one person would say it's fantastic another person would say it's terrible well you know the kind of the differentiating factor there will be what someone's home network is it's a little bit like if you look at reviews of of routers or something you know of so many different things that are connected you know p- two different people can have wildly different experiences and unless they can make it you know absolutely rock solid for the overwhelming majority of customers then people won't won't migrate to it. I mean, it's one of the the main reasons why people had a problem with the idea of an always online console from Microsoft. It wasn't it wasn't just a kind of you know ideological aversion to that kind of future where you know you had a console always checking up on you. It was the fact that you know like in the past six weeks, my internet's gone down for a significant amount of time, and so I wouldn't want to be locked out of a of a console out of things that I actually paid for. Uh, well, no. I'm- I think that's a good point across the board, isn't it? The idea that we're completely locked into online services for anything, regardless if it's gaming or whatever, TV, movies. Uh, once you lose your broadband connection, you're stuffed, aren't you? At least if I, I mean, if you don't have broadband, you can still pop a disc in your player or in your in your game console. It's a very good point, Mark. In a weird way, I mean, what Ed was saying about um, was about three G or four G kind of filling in some of the gaps with regards um, broadband speed. You know. Again, if you've got a phone, if you've got a smartphone, you're always likely to be somewhere where you can download something, where you can, you know, where you're always connected. Nope, not for me. <laughs> no, not actually, if, to if, be honest, if, it's not for me either. If my internet goes down and my phone is less than 3G, um, I'd have to go outside. I'd, <laughs> I'd have to leave the house. When my router died, I, I looked at my phone and I saw nothing there. And it's the most soul-destroying moment when you you think that you're you're connected to an open <laughs> Wi-Fi hotspot, <laughs> and you can't tap in a password quick enough. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so some of us search that out for like when we go on our holidays and stuff like that. But to be honest, if my internet was too good, oh, I don't even want to contemplate that. 
I've got no Wi-Fi next week at all. Nothing. Yeah, but you're on holiday, and you know that's the best way to be when you're on holidays to switch off. But every <laughs> the rest of the year, I'd, well, I don't know what I'd do. Like I said, I'd have to go outside and speak to people. <laughs> it's weird that that kind of the internet going down is a little bit like the modern equivalent of getting a power cut or something. You feel like you've reverted to a previous age. It's almost worse because you've, you've still got all your things, but you can't. Uh, it's it's an alien tactic. I, I don't want to break this to you guys, but I'm going to have to tell you now that you know the aliens have been here for years, and and they're forcing us down this route where we could become ever more reliable on online technologies and and you know being connected and all the rest of it because they're just going to pull the plug, and once they pull the plug, none of us will be able to survive on our own, and and they win without the war. That'd be all right. I watch Bear Grylls. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, um, um, power cut, worst thing in the world. What, what, worse, what, 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 worse than an alien invasion? A power cut? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I had a power, power cut, cut a couple of years ago, and, and I didn't know what to do. I couldn't do anything. Everything I do involves electricity. So I was like, <laughs> I, had to, I had to get <laughs> under the duvet. Moment, well, no, really horrible everything. moment couple... where you think, have I got a candle in the house? I got under the duvet with a book. That was the left, the only entertainment left to me, because <laughs> the heating, is, you know, involves electricity. So it was really cold in the house. That was it was, it was a nightmare. I thought, blimey, it was a, it was a sobering, you know, wake but, up but call. You see, to just you see this is this is what I'm, this is what I'm telling you. You know, it it's all set in motion. Give it ten years, the aliens will win without a war because we won't be able to look after ourselves. Good luck to them. <laughs> anyway, well, is that games I, news? I think that is games news. Alien news. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. I don't know when people say I spend too much time on my own. What's it, the cinema, Steve? Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, the fifth in the Mission Impossible series. And I've got to say, really, really good fun. Really enjoyed it. Um, I think one of the keys to this uh, series of films is the way that they use a different director each time. And this time they were using Christopher McQuarrie, uh, who wrote... Usual Suspects, and also directed Jack Reacher with Tom Cruise. And uh, he wrote and directed this. And I've got to say, it's, it's it's very entertaining. It's got some fantastic stunt work, a lot of which involves Mr. Cruise himself uh, doing some quite remarkable things. And interestingly, I, I love the way that the trailer didn't actually give you away too much at all because that scene with the plane, that's the opening sequence before the credits. So in terms of the actual plot of the film and a lot that happens later, you, they didn't give anything away in the trailer, which was really good to see. Right, so they, they see in, in the trailer, that looks like it's taking place on a Top Gear test track. And now that um, we've just um, you know, been told that they, they paid $250 million, that was him nicking the money, wasn't it? And, and getting away. <laughs> it, did, it did. I think, I'm not quite sure what country they were supposed to be in, but that was quite clearly the UK, wasn't it? You could see how the, <laughs> yep. it, that, that kind of green with the fences, you know, with the hedgerows and stuff, it was just, you know, that's the UK. It's an amazing stunt, don't get me wrong. I mean, he is tied to the side of a plane uh, and it looks fantastic. And it's a great opening sequence. I mean, it's it's a really good movie. It's got a great, it's a great opening sequence, which is you know, kind of a bit like the Bond, you know, it's a sort of separate little sequence in its own right. Then a really good credit sequence. And then it gets onto the story itself. And um, yeah, it, it was really enjoyable. There's, there's a, an intelligent script to it. So it, there's it's, it's a bit derivative in places, but then the whole series is derivative and it's hard not to be derivative these days. Without, you know, So there's elements of Bond in there, there's elements of Hitchcock in there, there's elements of um, you know, Born Identity in there, elements obviously of the original Mission Impossible show itself. It even references previous films, which I think is the first time they've done that explicitly. Uh, it's got a great cast. So you've got crews, obviously, but you've also got uh, returning from previous uh, Mission Impossible films, you've got Simon Pegg, Ving Rhames and Jeremy Renner. 
Um, there's Rebecca Ferguson who plays the female lead. She's very good in it too. Sean Harris, for me, the only weak spot. He's not bad as a villain, but he's just got this annoying habit of whispering really quietly so you can't understand what he's saying. He was the guy that was in the Jamaica Inn uh, on BBC last year when there were all the complaints about no one could understand a word he was saying, and he's not much better in this, frankly. He's the, the guy that played the geologist in Prometheus film, the one that goes, I'm only here to, for the money. Like you went on an interstellar mission for just for the money. Amazing. Um, anyway, he's the villain. But it's an interesting, um, he's head of a thing called the Syndicate, which is this anti-IMF organization, which is quite a good idea, which was mentioned very briefly at the end of the previous um, Mission Impossible movie. Um, what was it called? Uh, Ghost Protocol, that was it. So, uh, yeah, it's it's got a quite interesting script. It's very well made. It's got some fantastic stunt work, uh, a good cast, very enjoyable. I'm, is it the best of the series? Some people are saying it is. I'm not entirely sure. I think Ghost Protocol was really good. Um, and I really thought Mission Impossible 3 was excellent too um, when J.J. Abrams kind of re revamped the whole series. But, uh, but it's definitely up there. Um, certainly one of the most enjoyable films I've seen all year in terms of excitement and action. Um, there's some, some of the uh, stunt work that Elliot crews do, I mean, you're thinking like, I love to see the insurance policy for this film because, I mean, he's like racing <laughs> motorbikes and stuff, you know. Yeah, and but he does, he does really dangerous. <laughs> but he does that on every film he does. I don't know if you, you had a look at the Oblivion um, extras, but, he, you know, a lot of the stunts there, he was doing all them for for real, you know, yeah. falling from wires and jumping on motorbikes and all the rest of it. And the guy's got death wish. Well, which which one is it that opens up on him rock climbing without oh, any Oh, that's safety? the second one. I actually watched all five, by the way. I watched all the other ones as well before I went to go and see the fifth one at the cinema. Um, yeah, it starts off with him, like, free climbing, um, hanging there. I mean, I'm assuming there were, I'm assuming there were some cables in there that they, they, you know, they airbrushed out, but it looks really dangerous. Um, and yeah, um, he does a lot of that in this film too. Some of the bike work um, stunt and the motorbike chasing it, I thought was excellent. Really, really good. And it's clearly Tom Cruise in there riding that bike. Um, what, what was the so one? Hats off to the guy. What, what was the other one? I, I, they all sort of merge into one, but there was one where it had a Spanish theme to it, and and he he did that chase with the the Audi TT in it. The oh, base, that was also Mission Impossible too. Was it really right? Because yeah. I mean, that made that car that that scene. Yeah. yeah. I I... Um, also, I'd forgotten this watching Mission Impossible, the original one from 1996. Um, it's about you laugh, Phil, because David Phelan's in it. He plays uh, <laughs> the steward on the Eurostar train. God, he looks young. <laughs> he looks so young. <laughs> um, anyway, yes, it's uh, certainly, uh, I like the idea. I think this, the idea of using different directors has really paid off for this series of films, keeps them fresh. Uh, and this has got a slightly grittier edge in places, um, a slightly more complicated plot. Um, I think all the other previous ones involved rogue agents and arms dealers. This does not involve either of those, so I'm glad to say. Although I guess you could say that the actual IMF team have become the rogue agents in this sense. But anyway, it's um, yeah, it's it's very entertaining. Um, good solid eight out of ten. Uh, worth checking out if you, if you, you like an action movie. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Right, uh, this Friday, none of us are going to the cinema. But so what are we missing? <laughs> well, um, latest reboot. So Fantastic Four, which is being rebooted a mere 10 years after they launched the previous um, Fantastic Four movie, which had a sequel in 2007, so it's only eight years after that sequel. They're rebooting it again. Although this time, um, it's been directed by Josh Trank, who made Chronicle, which actually was very good. And um, and it's meant to be apparently taking place in the same universe as the X-Men movies, apparently. Uh, I don't know how true that is. But yes, the reboot of the Fantastic Four, where they've got, um, who have they got in it? Um, Mars Teller, who was in Whiplash, and um, Kate Mara, who's in House of Cards, and um, he's Michael B. Johnson, who's, who's uh, an upcoming black actor who's playing Johnny Storm, which is weird because I thought Johnny Storm is the brother of 
Kate Mars character. So that's was that how that played the? Uh, was that how that played the uh, reporter in House of Yes, Club? yes, that's it. Yeah, Jamie Jamie Bell is playing uh, Ben Grimm, who becomes um, the thing. So, um, so interesting thing, cast of young actors. So the thing's going to do some ballet. <laughs> interesting to see what he can do. No, I mean I, the trailers have, 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 have teased, and I just kind of I'm just kind of annoyed in it. They already rebooted something they only did ten years ago, and it just looks like they're just trying to jump on the whole um, Marvel bandwagon again. Um, and then tying it in with the X-Men universe to try and create that kind of cinematic universe that's been worked so well for Marvel. And now DC are trying to replicate. It just looks like Fox are trying to do something similar did, to themselves. Um, but, did the four not belong to Marvel at one point, though? Yeah, yeah, no. The, um, Fantastic Four, um, basically Marvel went bust in the 90s and um, flogged off a lot of their big titles to try and you know, cover their costs, uh, their debts. So um, Fantastic Four was sold to Fox. The X-Men were sold to Fox and Spider-Man was sold to Sony. Um which is why they had to use things like Iron Man to launch their own stuff because it was they, they still had the rights to Iron Man. Uh, Universal got the rights to the Incredible Hulk, but that's kind of reverted back to back to um, uh, Marvel as long as they don't make a film which just exclusively stars the Hulk, which is why he'll only ever appear as a supporting character in other films rather than in his own film these days. And didn't they? And th- th- famously, the Fantastic Four is also the film that Roger Corman made. Uh, I think it was in the, uh, the early eighties where he had the rights to it in order to keep the rights, he had to make a film by a certain date. So he made a film it was never intending to actually release. Though he didn't tell the cast that and, and made this really, really cheap film of the Fantastic Four in order to retain the rights for longer. So this is the third film version of the Fantastic Four, in fact. You know, it's being rebooted, making it darker and more, more gritty and more realistic. And it might be good. You know, maybe it would be good. Uh, it very much depends on the script, I suppose. The cast is interesting, though. But uh, I can't say I'm enthused by it. What is that noise? That's the cat just jumping. Get off my Millennium Falcon, you little shit. <laughs> no one touches my Falcon. All uh, right, to wrap up very quickly, um, Amazon paid 250 million quid, uh, sorry, what dollars, American company, um, for 36 episodes over three years uh, from the old Top Gear team of Clarkson, May and Hammond. Um... That is an extortionate amount of money, but the thing is, they're going to make it all back, aren't they, Mark? Yeah, you would assume so. I mean, it's it's one of those things. When I heard the story, I I, I hadn't seen anything about it, and I I assumed that it was going to say Sky. Um, but obviously, it makes massive sense for Amazon because they've needed something. They've needed one kind of high-profile show, one thing. You know, I think almost more than breadth of content. As long as you've got kind of one key selling point, you've seen with things like. BT and their broadband with having the football, it, you know, it, it brings in customers. Netflix, when they had House of Cards, it wouldn't matter how much that show cost. It, you know, it, it got them so much kind of advertising and word of mouth. And, and this is, you know, what, what Amazon service needs. Yeah, totally. And they will make this money. People will pay, what is it, £79 for the year? You know, that's cheaper than a TV license. It better be good, though. I mean, you know, it, it's it, it's a risky strategy in some ways in the sense that, you know, these things don't always translate. When you think there's a kind of an established formula or something, you know, shows that have changed channels and gone to different broadcasters yeah. can go wrong. But you see, the, the reason they've gotten around the contracts here is, is obviously it's an American company because obviously they had in their contracts that they couldn't do car shows for three or four years, I think, with a UK broadcaster. So that's why ITV and, and Sky and stuff fell by the wayside because they had clauses terms in in the contracts that they couldn't do that so that's why they've gone with amazon 
one of the reasons why they've gone with Amazon. I think there's 250 million reasons why there's, they've gone with Amazon, Phil. Well, yeah, but they would, they would have been offered that by... I mean, they made an absolute mint for the BBC. I mean, you're talking about the licence fee and all the rest of it, but actually BBC Worldwide, the amount of coinage that they brought in selling Top Gear Worldwide... Didn't they put, say something like 100 million? Yeah, it's 100 million a year, wasn't it? Or 90 yeah. million a year. Yeah. yeah. And Amazon will, will advertise it much more than BBC ever did. They'll absolutely... The other thing is, yeah, there. another thing is American uh, company... Um, do they fall under Ofcom rules? It's not a broadcast TV show. You've seen how bad Claxon, or how close to the edge Claxon's been with Ofcom and, and with the BBC. So does that open and open them up to be, you know, to be a bit more risky to chance a few Clarkson's more things? Already said he's got, they've got free raid, haven't they? Editorial raid, which be, yeah, which is quite worrying in a way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could be too much, and and it could be that because they had constraints at the BBC, that's why. They they were as good as they were because they they had to think of ingenious ways of getting things past Ofcom and all. That. So the, there is that side of things as well. But the other side of it is that um, it's Amazon, so they don't have advertising or anything like that. So it doesn't matter if they annoy car companies or you know if they're going to the ITV or they're going to Channel Four or or something like that. You know where advertisers are like like you know I don't know um, who are big car company advertisers, Audi or BMW or Volvo mm-hmm. or whatever. They would have said to China, "Oh, we're not going to advertise next to that because they, they slagged off our car." Whereas with Amazon, there's none of that. You know, they they don't take advertising, so they they can be quite honest within their reviews as well, and you know, annoy manufacturers and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of plus points there, but I think the biggest point, and I think you put your finger on it there, Mark, is that you know, with the no constraints, it could be that they go too far, or it could be that they're not made to work clever. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it goes. I'm not a massive Top Gear fan anyway but I will, I, you know I'm, I'm more interested in watching it now it's on amazon for some for some well, now it will be on amazon for some reason i don't know why I, I was expecting netflix to get it to be honest but they must have just been outbid by amazon seems a natural a natural fit for a streaming company trying to try to sort of launch itself with amazon i guess because it's it's popular all over the world this show so yeah well that's it i mean uh, even the last series they were doing it uh they were simulcasting it, weren't they, around the world? So there was loads of broadcast. That's why there was such a a big thing when the BBC cancelled it because all these broadcasters had spent millions in in getting the rights to show it as it was going out in the UK at the same time in their territory. So, um, so yeah, um, they'll coin it in. They'll make that money back quite easily, I, I would imagine. And I think if they get the formula right, um, then I think it'll make uh, make them all even richer. And poor Chris Evans stuck with. Uh, that that's got to be the hardest gig in town, is it not? Taking on Top Gear and trying to make it a success. It's gonna die, isn't it? Without those three, I would think. So uh, Steve's been quite quiet in this because I know he's not a car person. He's probably not a Top Gear. But no, I could, it, couldn't care less about good Top Gear, really. But uh, it's quite a big signal, though, for broadcast TV, isn't it? Really? Yeah, no question. I mean, we've been talking about this for some time, and you know. I think this is another another nail in broadcast TV's coffin now, isn't it? When you when you got someone like Amazon prepared to pay two hundred fifty million dollars for three years for a, a series, for presumably for three series of, um, of of whatever they call it, not Top Gear, but you know whatever the equivalent is, is going to be. That shows you where the future is, and and, it, and, it, and if you read the the um, government's green paper on the BBC that's been in the news recently, you know where they've talked about the license fee and, and the fact that you know it's unsustainable in, in in the current you know broadcast television and the license fee just really are unsustainable given the nature of modern technology and the way things have changed so 
You've got to ask yourself, how the BBC are going to fund itself. Which not, I've got nothing against the BBC. I think they're fantastic. But clearly the licence fee is an anachronism. Yeah. That's but I mean, that, that's, I mean, also, if you look at probably anyone under the age of 25 and ask them how much live TV they watch, I just imagine the answer to that is almost none. Unless it maybe is a sporting event. Yeah, ask me that. Ask me that. Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't. I don't watch live TV, actually. Uh, so if we're, we've already you know, changed our viewing habits to that extent, you've got to think, you know, really, how, how long is it before broadcast TV becomes unsustainable? So, you know, and, but then it goes back to the point that, um, that Mark B made, which is, you know, that's all well and good until you lose your broadband connection and suddenly you've got nothing to watch. Um, at least if it's being broadcast over the airwaves, you can still watch it. Uh, so there's a danger to being too dependent on on broadband as a delivery system, but there's no question that something like this and the stuff that Amazon and Netflix have been doing of late shows you that there, there is some serious money being pumped into. Yeah, I mean, I'm, imagine supplies. imagine Amazon buying the Great British Bake Off and Britain's Got Talent and what's the other Cowell, Simon Cowell thing? Um, X Factor. X Factor. X Factor. You know, they pay two hundred fifty million for for them as well, and and because one thing with Amazon is they don't have to show viewing figures, they don't have to tell anybody how popular something is. So, and and they seem to have unlimited funds at the minute. So, um, and they actually turned a profit this year, surprisingly. Um, so they've got money to burn on on these things, and and if they're looking for ways to draw people in, you know, buying programs up like Top Gear, like well, they haven't bought Top Gear, they bought the the stars of the show. Um, but even if they get one or two other IP things in and pay the money for them then you know that makes them see a serious uh part of the broadcast industry then even it's a bit it's different this as well isn't it because it's not like the traditional drama exclusive that they have it's a you know a more traditional magazine tv show which is a yep. it's a first isn't it so just make it more interesting and then the, and the idea that they could buy up you know anything they want in theory yeah. I'd be willing to start a whip round if they could take Britain's Got Talent off terrestrial TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 but what does terrestrial TV then become? You know, and and do the advertisers stay around to keep that keep that going? Well, they're not doing, are they? The advertising revenues are way down on broadcast TV. Yeah. Right, so it's started already. So yeah, you know, and and if they're talking about taking the license fee off the BBC and making them more commercial, where are they going to get the money from? Well, that's what they're talking about doing is making the BBC effectively into the same kind of thing as Netflix and Amazon as yeah. a fee-paying service, I which is, you know, some. and then they're talking about having, um, you know, two-tier service. So the basic package for whatever, five or a month or ten or a month, and then and then the more advanced package, you know, for more money, which ends up creating, you know, a, a, a package for people who, you know, can't afford to pay for the top-tier package, which kind of goes against the whole concept of the BBC, I think. But um, I'm surprised how much they put into that service, though, for the idea that it is free. I, if they were going to start charging for it, I thought they would have held back things like being able to download programs until they started charging. Because that's I don't see where they can go with the kind of two tier system without it seeming like they're now almost regressing on some services and penalising people. Well, I guess you know the the whole concept of the BBC and the way that it's been funded since since its inception. No one ever. Th- realized where we would end up in this day and age where stuff is being delivered online and the bbc has been leading the way in that i mean the iplayer has has been a very you know has been quite uh uh, ground you know groundbreaking and and setting up you know groundbreaking in terms of what it's delivered uh, and how it's delivered and how effective it's been long before we had things like netflix and amazon there was still iplayer available so the bbc has led the way in that sense but it's also in its own way creates a problem for itself isn't it by by delivering all this content for free already to people online, suddenly they're now going to have to start charging for it. 
which is, like I say, it will appear like a step backwards. And they're going to need to be more proactive in stopping people accessing iPlayer from overseas. Because basically, like, what you do for Netflix, and you know, a load of people in America access iPlayer for all the content, the BBC content. Well, I was reading a thing in the paper, actually, at the weekend about how, how all these um, streaming services, you know, people who stream streaming services, so like live sporting events. Oh, you did that thing in The Guardian? Yes. Did yeah, you read that? Was. Yeah, I did. It was yeah. good. Um, what was this about? You know, th- Assuming that, you know, I'm not one of those people, but what was it about? <laughs> uh, sports, sp- sp- people streaming sports, live sports over the internet. Yeah. And how incredibly hard it is to police it. and How, you know, how, e- how easy it is profit. to do. Yeah. It's yeah. so easy to do as well. Allegedly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ill- allegedly. Yeah. Well, that's the thing that they all do these services for free. There are, um, subs- there are subscription services you can buy, though. Yeah, and there are some that do advertising as well, but a lot of them, are, and the whole point is it's for the fans to see the games. Because the ridiculous thing is that uh, a th- you can't broadcast three o'clock kickoffs live in the UK, right? That's the rule. I mean, so that's why when they do live to games, they're not at 3 p.m. So, you know, but the argument is so that fans still, people still go to the ground. They've sold out the tickets to those grounds 10 times over. It's not like they're going to lose any sales broadcasting things at the same time. Well, I, 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 I don't do. know. I mean, if you've got a small ground like QPR, that's easy to sell out. If you've got somewhere uh, that's, that's a lot bigger, I don't know, like the Stadium of Light in Sunderland, that's never sold out. And, not, and, and, thinking, and you're, like, you're like 70 or 80 quid a ticket. Well, perhaps they've dropped the price of the ticket, they could sell out the game a bit better. <laughs> Is it? You're not kidding. 70, 80 pounds to... To watch one football match. Yeah, 70 or 80 quid for a ticket. I'm trying to remember what the Old Trafford was the last time I was forced to go down there. But obviously, all these games are broadcast outside the UK live, uh, you know, uh, on uh, 3pm. I mean, I just didn't live in Hong Kong. You could watch any premiership match you wanted to. Did you live in live. Hong Kong? I've not mentioned that for a while. Yeah, you've not mentioned it for a long time. Anyway, the point is you could watch any premier match game you wanted uh, live at 3pm. Uh, so people are streaming these things back into the UK, um, not for money, just because they feel that fans have the right to see their teams that they want to, and I think that's a valid point. Democracy in its purest form. Yeah, kind of revolution. Well, like, like you say, Steve, though, if they actually you know gave it back to the fans, you know, it was supposed to be the working man's game. Um, if they actually gave it back to the fans, got rid of the, the ludicrous sponsorship, you know, what was the premiership this year? It, it, well over billions, wasn't it? The, and the teams all get to share that in the top league. Yeah, if you look at the leagues underneath that, you know, it's drip fed. You know, they're, they're really poor in comparison. I mean, I think the difference between the bottom team in the premiership and the top team in the championship is something like 120 odd million quid. That's yeah. ludicrous. And the QPRs just found out. <laughs> give it back to the people. Exactly. 30 quid ticket to get into the grounds if it's sold out it's sold out you don't get to see the game yeah um, let's start a protest I'm deleting all my links to WYSIWYG now <laughs> <laughs> oh dear me I think we've done enough now um, yeah. enough damage done for another week right so if you've got any views on uh, any of the topics that we have uh, raised this week then leave us your thoughts leave them under the podcast in the podcast forum um, is broadcast TV dead is it doomed um, after Amazon paying all that money um, TVs is it now a race to the bottom of the market or will companies like Hisense bring value back and will Samsung, LG, Panasonic and the others still produce high end TVs or is that market dead leave us your thoughts <laughs> in the podcast thread my thanks to Mark Botwright you're a little limp Mark Hodgkinson. Where's your hot sister and the monster? And Steve with us. 
A few days in space. What's the worst that can happen? Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, bookmarkavforums.com for latest reviews, news and video. Plus, why not leave us a rating on iTunes, but only Steve. Only if you give us five stars. I'm Phil Hinton. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again next Wednesday. That's a threat. (laughs) 